Yeah, we're back. We're doing it again. Guest host. We're doing it again. Yeah, well, she's not a guest host. She was just a guest little intro singer. Well, is- you know, I'm, I'm giving her hosting duties now. Dave, oh, okay. David, I've been get kicked out of the off. chair. All right. You're done. I will see you guys later. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Retired. Done. Pass oh, the torch. It will. That's the only dream. It's the only way we're getting out of this damn podcast is when we recruit new people in to replace us. That's that's how this works. It's a, it's it's one in one out. That's the policy. Uh, all right, all right. Be- well, Cecilia, you have sung. Good night. Love you. All right, folks, let's go. Let's go. Uh, and we are going to be jumping right in this week again. Jumping into Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. Yes. My name's David, and yeah, we do we do normally do current events, and I don't want to say there's not like a lot going on out there, but there's not anything breaking and needing analysis. It's continuations of stuff. So, thank now as you're listening to this, you may be going, but Nathan and David, thing X just happened, and it's a very big deal. And you may well be right, but a, a fun fact to learn is that we are always like two or three weeks behind. Uh, based on the way our recording schedule works. So yes. if a major life-altering event has happened, uh, don't think we're just say, trying to downplay it or ignore it. It's just because we're two or three weeks. So in two or three weeks, come back, and you'll get our very late analysis. We are not a current event show. We just happen to plug it at the beginning of the show sometimes. That's right. That's right. We just want to make sure that, that the stuff, you know, we don't want to have to, like, try too hard to shoehorn comments about something in in the middle of the show and have it, like, not fit or forget it. Um, if we think it's important to talk about. And so that's what, it's not like there's nothing important to talk about. There's nothing new plus important to talk about. There could be something important to talk about. There could be something new, but nothing that fits our normal current event criteria, which is a nice break because we've had like 20 minute current events almost every episode for a while now. Yep, which means we are getting directly into Booktown. And that is good because our destination on Booktown today is a new chapter in Blood in My Eye by George Jackson uh, toward the United Front. A new Unitarian and progressive current has sprung up in the movement catering on political prisoners. How can this Unitarian C- conduct- centering on centering on political prisoners? Yeah, that. Yeah, that. Yeah. We're, we'll 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 go with the right words, David. God, <laughs> again, rarely rarely correct because we all fudge up the words. But when it changes the meaning, I want to interject. Nah, you're good. Uh, how can this Unitarian conduct be developed further in the face of determined resistance from the establishment? How can it be used to isolate reactionary elements? Unitarian conduct implies a search, quote-unquote, for those elements in our present situation which can become the basis for joint action. It involves a conscious reaching for the relevant, the entente, and especially, in our case, the reconcilable. Throughout the centralizing authority process of American history, the ruling classes have found it necessary to discourage and punish any genuine opposition to hierarchy. But there have always been individuals and groups who rejected the idea of two unequal societies existing on top of the other. Existing one on top of the other. The men who place themselves above the rest of society through guile, fortuitous outcome of circumstance, and sheer brutality have developed two principal institutions to deal with any and all serious disobedience. The prison and institutionalized racism. Good lord, that sentence. mm -hmm. Holy shit. Yep. The men who place themselves above the rest of society through guile, fortuitous outcome of circumstance, and sheer brutality have developed two principal institutions to deal with any and all serious disobedience. The prison and institutionalized racism. Yeah, a lot going on there. There are more prisons of all categories in the United States than in all other countries of the world combined. Remember, this was long before the crime bills. Yeah, too. this, yeah. Yeah, this, this, this was has- long before the border detention um, concentration camps of ICE uh, or ICE and Customs Border Patrol being created. Right. That was done in the 90s and the early 2000s for, you know, the crime bills and ICE and Customs Border Patrol, respectively. So, yeah, that's how bad this country is with it. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Um, bu- 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 there are uh, bu- 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 hundreds of. Are, uh, at all times, there are two-thirds of a million people or more confined to these prisons. Uh, as of 2016, that number was 2.3 million people, so that number has significantly risen since the time of this mm-hmm. writing. Uh, hundreds are destined to be legally executed, thousand more quasi-legally. Other thousands will never again have any freedom of movement, barring a revolutionary change in the institutions that can bind to make up the order of things. 
One third of a million people may not seem like a great number compared with the total population of 200 million. Again, extrapolate out 2.3 million uh, as of 2016 with a total population of what, like 350 million. So again, rising, rising faster than proportionally. Um, yeah. However, compared with the one million who are responsible for all the affairs of men within the extended state, it constitutes a striking contrast. What I want to explore now are a few of the subtle elements that I have observed to be standing in the path of a much-needed united front, non-sectarian, to effectively reverse this legitimized ripoff. Prisons were not institutionalized on such a massive scale by the people. Most people realize that crime is simply the result of a grossly disproportionate distribution of wealth and privilege, a reflection of the present state of property relations. There are no wealthy men on death row, and so few in the general prison population that we can discount them altogether. Imprisonment is an aspect of class struggle from the outset. It is the creation of a closed society which attempts to isolate those individuals who disregard the structures of a hypocritical establishment, as well as those who attempt to challenge it on a mass basis. Throughout its history, the United States has used its prisons to suppress any organized efforts to challenge its legitimacy. From its attempts to break up the early working men's benevolent association, to the banning of the Communist Party during what I regard as the fascist takeover of this country, to the attempts to destroy the Black Panther Party. The hypocrisy of American fascism forces it to conceal its attacks on political offenders by the legal fiction of conspiracy laws and highly sophisticated frame-ups. The masses must be taught to understand the true function of prisons. Why do they exist in such numbers? What is the real underlying economic motive of crime and the official definition of types and of offenders and vic- or victims? The people must learn that when one offends the totalitarian state, it is patently not upon an offense against the people of that state, but an assault upon the privilege of the privileged few. Could anything be more ridiculous than the language of blatantly political indictments? The people of the state versus Angela Davis and Rochelle McGee, or the people of the state versus Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins. What people? Clearly the hierarchy, the armed minority. We must educate the people in the real causes of economic crimes. They must be made to realize that even crimes of passion are the pseudo-social effects of an economic order that was decadent a hundred years ago. All crime can can be traced to the objective socioeconomic conditions, socially productive or counterproductive activity. In all cases, it is determined by the economic system, the method of economic organization. The people of the state versus John Doe is as tenuous as the clearly political frame-ups. It's like stating the people versus the people. Man against himself. Official definitions of crime are simply attempts by the establishment to suppress the forces of progress. I, I do like taking this example, and this was one thing that excited me in the book, because this is a, 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 one of the sections that I, I remembered as well as I should. My reading skills are not what they used to be. Um, and I was excited to get to this discussion a little bit, because something that it reminds me of is when people take this patriotic stance, you know, oh, you hate America, right? It's that if you if you believe in this or you don't believe in that or you or you you know rip on these crimes of the country, it's because you hate America, and so it's like well, when the people are victimized, like what is America? There's no there's no definition of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just creating an us. That's that's the point of nationalism, right? It traps you into an us, and you never ask what is America. Who does it serve? Does it really serve me? Even when it does serve me, is it more against my my will than for my will? You know that never happens. It just gets gobbled up, and and so you know the the same thing happens when it's talking about like the people or the the state of blah versus you know right. Um, that was the same Roe v. Wade we talked about, and, and we're we're dealing with the overturn of that right. Wade in that case is Wade County. Mm-hmm. You know, is it all of the people in Wade County versus one person in Wade County who got an abortion? No, that's bullshit. Yeah. Prisoners must be reached and made to understand that they are victims of social injustice. This is my task working from within. While I'm here, my persuasion is that the war goes on no matter where one may find himself on bourgeois-dominated soil. The sheer numbers of the prisoner class and the terms of their existence make them a mighty reservoir of revolutionary potential. Working alone and from within a steel-enclosed society, there is very little that people like myself can do to awake the restrained potential revolutionaries outside the walls. This is part of the task of the prison movement. The prison movement, the August 7th movement, and all similar efforts educate the people in the illegitimacy of establishment power and hint at the ultimate goal of revolutionary consciousness at every level of struggle. 
The goal is always the same, the creation of an infrastructure capable of fielding a people's army. Each of us should understand that revolution is aggressive. The manipulators of the system cannot or will not meet our legitimate demands. Eventually, this will move all of us into a violent encounter with the system. These are the terminal years of capitalism, and as we move into more and more basic challenges to its rule, history clearly forewarns us that when prestige of power fails, a violent episode precedes its transformation. That, I mean, that that does sum up uh, a, a very common argument when you're talking to people, and especially when you're getting into... Uh, mostly uh, mostly softer softer liberal to sock dem kind of people of well we'll reform the system we're just going to reform it from within and and jackson just disposes of all of that like no no yeah. you're not one at no, one point they'll, or another you're back. going to have right. to fight it well you're seeing this now right i mean there's every reactionary institution in the world that's easily drummed up whenever they want to put down leftward movement right there's still people getting excited like oh you know now this more left-leaning person is elected and it's like yeah you know we're not accelerationists right we're we, no. we see those those gains we're, we're good with that but we also don't expect those to be very real gains through you know the bourgeois electoral process Right. No. I mean, something something that goes against uh, accelerationism is that you see in every revolution there's there's gains more and more. Right. Like, you know, we, again, the, the example we'll always use is, is, is Russia because it's just too easy. Uh, you know, 1905 and the building of the Soviets and, and the, the breaking of autocracy. But then you saw what happened after that. Right. How violent things got um, immediately when that started breaking down, um, when prestige of power loses its prestige when it is just power that power becomes naked and so either a bunch of violence happens because everything is going to break down a civil war or a bunch of violence happens because that power without its prestige is going to crack down in its autocracy and and, and open up its brutality and it's your choice which one of those happens there is no non-violent choice no that just doesn't happen no. right and and i don't even think i think the easier way for me that i've i've been looking at this is these are not Everyone's trying to conflate. Well, is this this well electing leftists isn't going to help the revolution? Isn't isn't revolutionary? That's not helping the revolution. I'm like, yeah, no, no, yeah, that you're you're right. Yeah, good, um, good with that. Yeah, they're they're not on. They're not even racing in the same race. They're not competing against each other. They're not racing against each other. The the path that leads towards revolution happens no matter what is happening in electoral politics, period. It needs to move unabated by what is happening in electoral politics completely. They're disassociated from each other. They're not playing the same game. Like, yeah. can, you, can you look at one and go, that is a materially good thing? Sure. A, a, a person further to the left getting elected over someone in these sorts of elections right now where you're going up against someone that says, I believe in God's law and that should be the law of the land and that's the only morality that I need. Like, okay, yeah, that's an undeterminately good thing. But that has nothing to do with what I'm doing over here on the revolutionary side. It's not like that got me closer on the revolution side of the board either. It's You can get the most lefty leftist in the world that you want elected to some meaningless electoral position. That didn't advance the track either. They're not playing the same game. They're not the same thing. Well, the, the you know the the good uh, example I couldn't suddenly can't think of the DA's name, but the supposedly leftist abolitionist DA that that didn't exactly release everyone from prison and and was elected in Philadelphia and kept uh, Mumi Abul Jamal in prison and also covered up some papers that uh, could have helped uh, um, exonerate him. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's nothing all that left about about keeping the same power structures in place that how is that how is that all that left right and even if he'd done the the opposite you know i mean it's great mumia you know free mumia is a major movement for a reason but mumia getting out of prison individually also is not a major revolutionary turn it's one person it matters it's a good thing it's kind of like you know throwing a cop in prison right it's a good thing we want that we want to fight for that but that's not going to bring about the revolutionary change right and again that's like when you're talking about that i think that's another great example when you talk about oh well you know we're revolutionaries we want prison abolition so what we can't be happy that george chauvin or whatever his dick ass name was got thrown in prison yep. that's not what no different entirely different ball games there is a material reality that we live in and and wanting some sort of of retributive justice for a for a horrible wrong does not mean we're still not working towards privilege on the other side it, it, they're they're different tracks they're not related 
Oh, yeah. I mean, we said it before. It's as simple as, you know, you you can't be an abolitionist by standing up for a cop, right? You can't yeah. be an abolitionist by standing up for the freedom for the prison industrial complex to do as it pleases. I do very much like how you turned George W. Bush and Derek Chauvin into one person. That was magical. Dave. You know, George, I, I'm George still, W. Chauvin. The, the, Bush, um, the Bush thing from the other week with he opened his mouth is still, it's, it's man, it's doing psychic damage. <laughs> it's doing persistent, ongoing psychic damage to me still to yes. this day. Yeah, but I did. I did like what you're saying about it not being running the same race, right? We we've said it before. We've said it again. You know, we don't encourage anyone wasting their time in in you know electoral politics deeply. It doesn't mean don't vote and don't have a candidate you like more within it. And that doesn't mean how dare you run any electoral campaign and keep up within it. Just realize what what you're doing. And so you know, everything we do is strategic and for gains, right? We talk mm-hmm. about protests, right? Protests are not going to magically turn the country over. You know, they're they're uh, in essence of force, right? Um, you're going to try to push politicians in power to make some kind of reform, and we want that. You know, even prison abolition, there's several types of work that we're going, you know, that we're fighting in several different strategies. Everything is a strategy, and every strategy you do, it should be pressed against, like, you know, what are the realistic gains? What is the realistic chance those gains happen? How much effort and risk is taken in here? And when you balance those out, you should use every strategy available that makes sense. And it's not like electoral politics don't have anything to offer. They just have very little and they take an immense amount of effort and money and, and, and don't, don't have the revolution on the other side. And so, you know, any kind of, of gain for the people should be fought for and should be fought for strategically with what resources are available, but you have to realize you, you know, even if you feel like you have unlimited resources, which if you do, why don't we have the, the revolution, you know, exactly. yet, right? Exactly. Um, but even then, you're still, you know, out of time, out of, you know, available power, right? You have so many revolutions for political action. And so anytime you allot anything, it should be, you know, with an end goal, like, what are we achieving with this goal? And is on the other side of that goal, revolution. If on the other side of the goal isn't revolution, that doesn't mean the goal isn't worth pursuing, but that means it should be heavily discounted when you're balancing is this worth the effort? And that's where electoral politics really come up short because there is no revolution on the other side of that. Yeah. Your cost your your cost benefit analysis on on electoral politics, not great. Not not the haven't best. Exactly not the seen, best. Haven't exactly seen great returns on that one uh, yes. ever in this country. No, ever. No, Just no, ever. No. Um, we can attempt... Oh, sorry. No, Am no, I, go. Jump go. Ahead. Were you still saying something? Okay. No, so, not at all. We can attempt to limit the scope and range of violence and revolution by mobilizing as many partisans as possible at every level of socioeconomic life. But given the hold that the ruling class has on this country and its history of violence, nothing could be more certain than civil disorders, perhaps even civil war. I don't dread either. There are no good aspects of monopoly capital, so no reservations need be recognized in its destruction. Monopoly capital is the enemy. It crushes the life force of all the people. It must be completely destroyed as quickly as possible, utterly, totally, ruthlessly, relentlessly destroyed. I know we like to add analysis, but there is nothing to add to that. That was perfect. (laughs) Other Other than, like, you know, keep... Keep that that in your little mental pocket right there. Yep. Um, with this as a common major goal, it would seem that anti-establishment forces would find little difficulty in developing common initiatives and methods consistent with the goals of mass society. Regretfully, this has not been the case. Only the prison movement has shown any promise of cutting across the ideological, racial, and cultural barricades that have blocked the natural coalition of left-wing forces at all times past. So this movement must be used to provide an example for the partisans engaged at all their levels of struggle. The issues involved and the dialectic which flows from that an understanding of the clear objective existence of overt oppression could be the springboard for our entry into the tide of increasing worldwide socialist consciousness. In order to create a unified left, whose aim is the defense of political prisoners and prisoners in general, we must renounce the idea that all participants must be of one mind, and should work at the problem of a single party line or from a single party line or the single party line with a single method. The reverse of this is actually desirable. From all according to ability, each partisan outside the vanguard elements should work at radicalizing in the area of their natural environment. The places where they pursue their normal lives when not attending the rallies and demonstrations. 
The vanguard elements, organized party workers of all ideological persuasions, should go among the people concentrated at the rallying point with a consciousness-raising strategy, promoting commitment and providing concrete, clearly defined activity. The vanguard elements must search out people who can and will contribute to building of the commune, the infrastructure with pen and clipboard in hand. For those who aren't ready to take that step, a packet of pamphlets should be provided for their education. So again, it's important to have a vanguard. It is important for that vanguard to have a party line. It is important for that vanguard to be for the people, right? And the mass line, right? You go to the people, you listen to what their problems are, you understand the structure, you tie their problems back to the structure, and you give them concrete solutions both for what to do in the meantime and what actions you're going to take to help them and to agitate against the suppression, but also broadly how, you know, disassembling the entire structure that's against them is going to provide them with what they need through revolution so that people understand the revolution. That's the vanguard. Outside of the vanguard, people don't have to pull together in one party line. They have to be fighting any way they can with whatever resources and skills in whatever communities they can, right? You know, you don't you don't have to go out and have everybody trying to do the same thing where nobody is trying to, you know, raise the consciousness of the layman and everybody's completely focusing on, you know, raising the revolutionary potential and radicalization of the most oppressed masses. But you also should not be ignoring that there definitely needs to be a concerted effort, mostly on the most oppressed masses, not like converting Nazis or some bullshit. Um, but the broad, you know, consciousness still needs, you know, some effort, somebody doing that. Everybody has their role. And the Vanguard should mostly guide that, but not necessarily having everybody listen to the Vanguard one by one. Everybody should be have a buy-in enough that they should be finding their own strategy and working apart from each other. And anytime we see people not on the same level, not working the same strategy, we shouldn't be tearing each other down. We should be like, that's not my arena, right? I'm in the Vanguard or I'm out of the Vanguard and this is my arena or whatever. That's it. And we're all working to the same goal. Absolutely. All of this, of course, means that we're moving and on a mass level, not in all separate directions, but firmly under the disciplined and principal leadership of the Vanguard Black Panther Communist Party. One simply could not act without a head. Democratic centralism is the only way to deal effectively with the American ordeal. The Central Committee of the People's Vanguard must make its presence felt throughout the various levels of the overall movement. With the example of unity in the prison movement, we can begin to break the old behavioral patterns that have repeatedly allowed bourgeois capitalism, its imperialism, and fascism to triumph over the last decades. We tap a massive potential reservoir of partisans for cadre work. We make it possible to begin this to address one of the most complex psychosocial byproducts that economic man with his private enterprise has manufactured. Racism. It saved this most critical barrier to our needs of unity for last. Or I've saved this most critical barrier to our needs of unity for last. Racism is a matter of ingrained traditional attitudes conditioned through institutions. For some, it is as natural a reflex as breathing. The psychosocial effects of segregated environments compounded by bitter class repression have served in the past to render the progressive movement almost totally impotent. The major obstacle to a united left in this country is white racism. There yep. are three categories of white racists. Yeah, no, I mean, we've nope. talked about that several Sorry. times. Yeah, it's, that's, it's, just, that's just a good set. That's a pretty it, evergreen it sentence. <laughs> it, it, it is, it is. And he makes it very clear. It's a white racism, right? You know, I mean, it's not like there isn't bigotry among other groups, you know, but that's a byproduct of white racism. And it's not like people need to, you know, accommodate white people, right? It's up to white people specifically, but it's up to the racist to fix themselves. And of course, we can't just say, well, you racists need to fix yourselves. Go out on your own and do it. Bye, right? Like, obviously, there needs to be some semblance of guidance. But again, that's not everybody's job. And that should follow, you know, the party line, right? Oh, you know, mm-hmm. we need to focus on, you know, Black Lives Matter upholding black people. You can't cross the line that we are against racist police brutality and the racism of the prison industrial complex to try to reach out to white supremacists. No, you've, you've screwed it up. You've broken the democratic centralism. Screw that. You're not, you're not in our movement. We're not going all these different directions, right? Yep. We have one goal and one goal together and everybody has their own arenas and the Vanguard should, you know, provide guidance, right? So, um, there are three categories of white racists, the overt, self-satisfied racist who doesn't attempt to hide his antipathy, the self-interdicting racist who harbors and nurtures racism in spite of his best efforts, 
and the unconscious racist who has no awareness of his racist perception, preconceptions. I deny the existence of black racism outright. By fiat, I deny it. Too much black blood has flowed between the chasm that separates the races. It's fundamentally unfair to expect the black man to differentiate at a glance between the various kinds of white racists. <laughs> again, listen to that <laughs> sentence again. It is yes. fundamentally unfair to expect the black man to differentiate at a glance between the various kinds of white racists. Get that in your head, folks. Yep. What the apologists term black racism is either a healthy defense reflex on the part of a sincere black partisan who's attempting to deal with a realistic problem of survival and elevation, or the racism of the government stooge organs. As black partisans, we must recognize and allow for the existence of all three types of racists. We must understand their presence is an effect of the system. It is the system that must be crushed, for it continues to manufacture new and deeper contradictions of both class and race. Once it is destroyed, we may be able to address the problems of racism at an even more basic level, but we must also combat racism while we are in the process of destroying the system. The self-interdicting racist, no matter what his acquired conviction or ideology, will seldom be able to contribute with his actions in any really concrete way. His role in revolution, barring a change in a basic character, will be minimal throughout. Whether the basic character of a man can be changed is still a question. But we have in the immediacy of the issues in question the perfect opportunity to test the validity of materialist philosophy again. Because we don't have to guess, we have the means of proof. The need for a Unitarian conduct goes much deeper than the liberation of Angela, Bobby, Erica, McGee, Los Siete, Tijerina, White Draft Resisters, and now the indomitable faithful James Carr. Um, and of course, this is a, a series of, of specific to the Times cases. There's Angela Davis, Bobby Seale, Erica Huggins, uh, Rochelle McGee, uh, Los Sietes de la Raza, which were the seven Chicanos who were acquitted in San Francisco on the charge of killing a police officer, um, but get, you know, at, harassed more. Uh, the Tejerina was Race Tejerina, a Chicago leader in prison for his attempt to reassert Mexican-American ownership by right of treaty grant to large tracts of land in the Southwest. James Carr was with George Jackson uh, during most of his prison years. Um, the good friend George Jackson's. And again, this is in the footnote, but this is also something we went over a little bit in the intro of James Carr. Mm -hmm. um, and while on parole, he repeatedly attempted to come to George's... Reportedly attempted to come to George's assistance during the violent aftermath of the Soledad brothers hearing on April 6th. Um, he was arrested and at the time of this writing faced the possibility of return to prison and complete his life sentence. I believe he, he was acquitted for he that. He was acquitted for that. Yeah, he was yeah. acquitted. Uh, we have a fundamental strategy to be proved, tested, and proved. The activity surrounding the protection and liberation of people who fight for us is an important aspect of the struggle, but is important only if it provides new initiatives that redirect and advance the revolution under new progressive methods. There must be a collective redirection of the old guard, the factory and the union agitator, with the campus activists who can counter the ill effects of fascism at its training site, and with the lumpen proletariat intellectuals who possess revolutionary scientific socialist attitudes to deal with the masses of street people already living outside the system. They must work towards developing the unity of the pamphlet and the silenced pistol. Black, brown, and white are all victims together. At the end of this massive collective struggle, we will uncover our new man, the unpredictable culmination of revolutionary process. He will be better equipped to raise the real struggle, the permanent struggle after the revolution, the one for new relationships between men. And that is a good ending to a, uh, I guess, a section of the book. Okay. All right. So, again, that was the end of a chapter. Um, the chapters are, are built into broader sections, and that seems to be the end of a section because a new section is coming up. So, yes. um, that that's the end of the chapter. Again, very succinct there, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you have three, you have multiple types of, of white racists, and you can't go, well, I'm not the explicit one. I'm the well-intended one. That's not black people's problem to figure out. Racism no. is racism. Shut the fuck up, you know? Yeah. But white people between each other can differentiate that so that we can, you know, work to counter the racism, and we should all be aware that that is a true thing, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and again, you know, we should know the system needs to break it. It's not like we don't have to address racism in the meantime. You know, that's a survival technique. That's an important thing we have to take down. Um, but you'll never get rid of racism without getting rid of the system. It will just reproduce it in a new way. Right. Right. If you, you know, if you let hate crimes go, um, then, you know, racism, of course, will flourish. But if you crack down on hate crimes, that'll actually just be used to crack down on minorities anytime they, they don't do something against, you know, white people or people within their same ethnicity, right? There, there'll be heaps of bullshit, you know, same thing with like guns, right? You allow guns and white supremacists are going to buy it up at, at full speed. That's why they love guns, love their second amendment, shit like that, right? But you ban them, who's it going to come cracking down on ethnic minorities? And then all the white supremacists are still going to have the guns and especially populate the, the, you know, formal arm of that white supremacy, the military and police, Right. Yep. You know, you have to get rid of the system to start addressing these things truly and fully, not that we shouldn't address it in the meantime. 100%. Um, and along with that, I did I did in that last paragraph find a uh, a funny kind of inversion of what, what the, the main line usually is on this, where he's talking about there must be a collective redirection of the old guard, the factory and union agitator, with the, with the campus activists who can counter the ill effects of fascism at its training site. Because you know how the, the mainstream media line, or, or at least the right-wing line, is that, oh, campuses are just this ideological bastion for communism and all of yeah. this other. It's like, no, they're not. <laughs> they're well, that's just training grounds that that's a line because that's an old anti-semitic trope um that's where that comes from right it was uh what was the 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 school um in germany um that was the it was very anti-communist but it was supposedly the communist school during the weimar and and it got shut down and and supposedly there's an anti-Semitic conspiracy that, that was a Jewish thing because the Judeo-Bolsheviks and that's why the Germans shut down that school and then when that school got shut down all of that scattered to all the other schools and that's how the Jews took it, it that, that's an anti-Semitic trope that's what it is it, is, it that's the Frankfurt? Not, is it the Frankfurt school? Frankfurt school that's it the Frankfurt school which is actually a very very anti-communist school it was it's very much in the in the Bernstein um, you know um, and Kautsky like the anti-Soviet design at the time um, so it is, it is weird that that's supposed to be the bedrock of communism. Uh, but that's it. It's, 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 you know, Frankfurt school paranoia anti-Semitism. Okay. So that's Thank what you. that is. So don't, don't, yeah. I mean, obviously everybody knows, you know, campuses aren't actually communists. Like the CIA has God knows what in, in, in there. So, yeah. So moving on then to our next section, uh, interestingly titled after the revolution has failed. After the killing is done, the ruling class goes on about the business of making profits as usual. So we go to our first section within that chapter, I guess you would say, on withdrawal. Yeah, before we get into that, I will, I will, you know, one more note that we've noted multiple times here. This, of course, was written right after COINTELPRO, so keep that in mind with the names of some of these chapters and some of these themes. Absolutely. Um, still, we're, we're starting with the definition from Merriam-Webster, like any good intro uh, paper should. <laughs> Like Eddie, Merriam-Webster defines uh, syllogism, noun, argument with two premises and a conclusion, a logical scheme of formal argumentation consisting of a major and minor premise and a conclusion which must logically be true if the premises are true. As someone that had to take logic in college, no, thank you. Um, After revolution has failed. All questions must center on how a new revolutionary consciousness can be mobilized around the new set of class antagonisms that have been created by the authoritarian reign of terror. At which level of social, political, and economic life should we begin our new attack? First, we, the black partisans and the vanguard party, the old and new left alike, must concede that the workers' revolution and its vanguard parties have failed to deliver the promised chapters in property relations or any of the institutions that support them. This must be conceded without bitterness, name-calling, or the intense rancor that is presently building. Oh, yeah. All right. I like that. That That is dead on. Um, there have been two depressions, two great wars, a dozen serious recessions, a dozen brush wars, crisis after economic crisis. The mass psychosocial national cohesiveness has trembled on the brink of disruption and disintegration repeatedly over the last 50 years. Tack another 50 onto it, and the, mm-hmm. it's ever true. Uh, threatening to fly apart from its own concentric inner dynamics. But at each crisis, it was allowed to reform itself. With each reform, revolution becomes more remote. 
This is because the old left has failed to understand the true nature of fascism. We will never have a complete definition of fascism because it is in constant motion, showing a new face to fit any particular set of problems that arise to threaten predominance over the traditionalist capitalist ruling class. But if one were forced, for the sake of clarity, to define it in a word simple enough for all to understand, that word would be reform. We can make our definition more precise by adding the word economic. Economic reform comes very close to a working definition of fascist motive forces. That bears uh, pausing on, I would say. David? Yeah, that, that takes that takes some discussion. But I, I think it's very prescient, too. It's not all, it's all not the first time, you know, communists has, has come upon that, right? There's These are always grounded in material observations. We don't, you know, assume for one second that there's no difference between a more, you know, left-leaning liberal politic and a very right fascistic politic. It's just that functionally the outcomes are the same, and that's where, like Stalin's, you know, famous quote that social democracy is the left wing of fascism, right? Yeah. Um, so when he says reform, those are people that are interested in upholding the system at all costs, right? When he says economics, just separately, um, you know, it's the defense of a free market economics against, you know, the abolition of private property, and of course when you get into economic reform, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That is either the left-wing of fashion social democracies defending it by reaching out to certain portions of the ruling class, which is always at someone's expense to uphold fascism and try to share the wealth a little more, or much more often, that's austerity. Right? Mm -hmm. Austerity, austerity, austerity. And that's inclusive of intra-country austerity and extra-country imperialist austerity, and and um, I suddenly can't think of the name of the, the loans that that make IMF. people change their economies. I know IMF, but there's there's like a thing they have with the the, the loans. There's a word uh, about like restructuring your economy for the for the loans or something. We've said it before on the show, and I just my brain yeah, is, yeah, is yeah, flattening yeah, yeah. out. Yeah, uh, okay. debt restructuring, debt restructuring, yes. yes. Um, debt restructuring. So again, you know, I mean, the, sovereign very debt much- restructuring, sovereign debt restructuring. Yeah. So again, you know, this is, you know, economic reform is going to come in in one of two ways, right? It's going to be people desperately trying to uphold the system when the system that badly needs to be overthrown is dying. Um, And, you know, maybe for left-leaning reasons, maybe compassionate, you know, we don't want to die in the meantime, right? We've said before, we want to live for the revolution. Um, Or it could be, of course, very right-leaning people pushing austerity measures, right? Trying to destroy public schooling, trying to force people back to work during a pandemic, um, you know, yada, 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 throwing, throwing more money at the, at the police, right? You know, reforming the police, right? And, and doing that through economics where we're throwing more money at them for body cameras and trainings and things like that, which has only grown police departments. Um, every time, you know, whether it's the word reform, the word economic, or the words together, economic reform, which all have three distinct meanings, it's an inlet of fascism, whether it's a last second defense of, you know, capitalism, private property, which is what fascism is at its core. It's just very, very violent. Um, or it's it's going about, you know, doing the work of the ruling class very much against the people, which, of course, is fascism. And we the, the common example we brought up time and time again, the New Deal. I mean, right. that that 100 percent is a it, to look that is looked at as the great far left liberal policy decision mm-hmm. of the 20th century kind of a thing. And. In reality, when you actually break it down and and look at what it did and what it was, it was fascist. It was a lifeline to capitalism. Yes, it was a lifeline to capitalism. It was explicitly peppered with redlining. Um, it came at you know a World War II strategy of defeating Nazi Germany because they were a threat, but then making sure that the United States got involved just enough to have power to push around everyone who actually died fighting the Nazis. Um, in World War II, and so that U.S. could establish its hegemony and basically, you know, take over Europe and become the center colony or become the center metropole to all of the colonies of everyone, right? Um, so, you know, I mean, there was a huge boost in 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 that, um, and you know, a lot of of the New Deal, a lot of that came tacked on later with like Lyndon Johnson and stuff, and nobody thinks about that, and and a lot of that came to combat the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, the, the New Deal was not like, oh, signed in the 40s and like every social program that, that has been ravaged or hasn't came about exactly at that time. A lot of that stuff got tacked on later. 
Yeah, anytime. And again, anytime. And look at the points. Look at the points in time that you're mentioning too. The 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 New Deal. 1940s, you know, area the the civil rights movement. We got more tacked on. They're always tacking on and doing these so quote unquote big liberal reforms and things like that at the exact time when tension is the highest. Those are the periods mm-hmm. where we were the closest to real revolution in this country, and that's mm-hmm. the time when all of a sudden you see these grand liberal policies that are supposed to make. No, they're not. They're they're that's not. They are appeasing. And they are there to to take the pressure off what would otherwise be an explosion against capitalism. That's all they're and, designed to do. And a lot of a lot of the wealth to do that because you know the people at the head of the the uh, economic structure, the the ruling class, are not going to give up their profits for us. They are steadfastly against us. So, and this is where you know there's always some benefit, right? People act rationally, so there's always some tangible benefit that people latch onto. This is what's kept racism going what's kept white racist um you know even ones that, that want to be more left leaning from from joining in the revolution right um is is that as an outlet of that pressure to get the people in the metropole to you know continue supporting this imperialism continue supporting these structures it's come at the expense of the global south every right? time and then and then those tangible benefits that you don't have to have a civil war for are suddenly very appealing to people and they're putting their rakes down and supporting the government's war efforts and instead of combating the imperialism that's that's hurting our brother workers to further empower you know the people that are oppressing us that made us poor in the first place right um you know I, we we have to show people to to look at the broader harm of the system versus the small ways it benefits them but it, it can be as little sometimes as not re-examining people's own ideology or as much as, you know, basic social programs or nice little trinkets that, that you buy from the consumer culture that get people to buy in that they just have it the best when they have it some of the worst, you know. Yeah, no, you know, you don't have any health care, but God damn it, you have an iPhone, right? And people think about that and and they don't, you know, oh, yeah, we have the biggest, you know, deadliest, um, most populated per capita and total prison population in the world while cops go around shooting a thousand people a year right but you feel kind of safe that you have this nice little lawn and that you're not in a war zone because we're sending our troops over there it's bread and circuses but we don't even really get the bread no no we we it's it's crumbs and circus and goddamn do we love our crumbs they're they're fucking gold-plated We've got forty-five different varieties of crumbs. God damn it! I'll tell you that much. Yeah, and 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 the same thing again because we are talking about fascism that extends to to Europe and, and other places. You know, in Western Europe, right? A lot of the places that stopped socialism that was a big part of the Marshall Plan and a big part of expanding. You know, we talk about we don't have the the healthcare here. That's why a lot of Western Europe has healthcare. It was yeah. basically pressured to stave off the the socialist movements when people could see life being better right there in the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, mere yeah, a, a train ride away. Yeah. Uh, Such a definition may serve to clarify things, even though it leaves a great deal unexplained. Each economic reform that perpetuates ruling class hegemony has to be disguised as a positive gain for the upthrusting masses. Disguise enters as a third stage of the emergence and development of the fascist state. The modern industrial fascist state has found it essential to disguise the opulence of its ruling class leisure existence by providing the lower classes with a mass consumer's flea market of its own. Exactly what you were talking about, David. Exactly mm-hmm. what you were talking about. Um, to allow a sizable portion of the new state to participate in this flea market, the ruling class has established currency controls and minimum wage laws that mask the true nature of modern fascism. Reform, the closed economy, is only a new way for capitalism to protect and develop fascism. After the German SS agents or Italian black shirts kicked in the doors and herd Jews and communist partisans to death camps after Peg Leg White's Black Legion terror and the Guardians of the Republic and their offspring legitimized the FBI. In other words, after the fascists had succeeded in crushing the vanguard elements and the threat they pose is removed, the ruling class goes on about the business of making profits as usual. So there was a footnote right after that Peg Leg White's Black Legion of Terror and the Guardians of the Republic. Probably the author is referring to the Guardians of Liberty, an anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant group formed by ex-military officers and civil servants in in New York in 1911. Among its founders was Nelson A. Miles, former chief of staff of the United States Army. 
But uh, the significance of the new fascist arrangement lies in the fact that this business as usual is accompanied by concessions to the degenerate segment of the working class, with the aim of creating a buffer zone between the ruling class and the still potentially revolutionary segments of the lower class. Corporate... Corporative ideals have reached their logical conclusion in the U.S. The new corporate state has fought its way through crisis after crisis, establishing its ruling elites in every important institution, formed its partnership with labor through its elites, erected the most massive network of protective agencies, replete with spies, technical and animal, to be found in any police state in the world. The violence of the ruling class of this country in the long process of its trend toward authoritarianism and its last and its last and highest state, fascism, cannot be rivaled in its excess by any other nation on earth today or in history. With each advancement in the authoritarian process and strengthening of the ruling class's control over the system, there was a corresponding weakening of the people's and workers' movement. And intellectuals still argue whether America is a fascist country. This concern is typical of the American left's flight from reality, from any truly extreme position. This is actually a manifestation of the authoritarian process seeping into its own psyche. At this stage, how can anyone question the existence of a fascist arrangement? Just consider the awesome capitalist centralization power and the proven fact that the largest part of the gross national product is in the hands of a minute portion of the population. Of course the revolution has failed. Fascism has temporarily succeeded under the guise of reform. The only way we can destroy it is to refuse to compromise with the enemy state and its ruling class. Compromises were made in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. The old vanguard parties made gross strategic and tactical errors. At the existential moment, the last revelation about oneself, not many members of the old vanguard chose to risk their whole futures, their lives, in order to alter the conditions that Huey P. Newton describes as destructive of life. And that's that's so importantly going to put a little a little pin and expanding on that. Um that's not to say, again, that we shouldn't work for gains, but every time we put our guard down, oh, you know, we've gotten that gain. Look, you know, we've, we, we may not got everything we want, but, you know, one in the hand is worth two in the bush. Let's, let's take this gain right here, right, and put our guard down. No, they're already throwing those things at you because you have them, you know, you have them doubled over, right? You, you have the leg up. Keep fighting. Don't stop. Right, won't we'll fight for total revolution. Don't stop at the reform. And anytime we've stopped at a reform, it's gone backwards afterward. And then it's it's just browbeating, browbeating, browbeating after the gain of that reform. And that's really what the Democratic Party is, right? We've talked about that. There's a whole reason it has this left reputation when it doesn't do anything left. Is it supposedly guards these gains and supposedly gave us these gains? But those are just the politicians that fell in line and said, "Wait, wait, wait." What if we stop your revolution and we give you this little thing that they're, they're clearly already willing to give us, right? That's a sign that mm. we have power. It's a sign they wouldn't come to us with that agreement if it wasn't beneficial for them, right? Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, and no. we talk, th- this is the Marxist belief, right? A, a boss wouldn't employ you if he's not making more money off of your work than what he's paying you. So your work is worth more than what you paid by definition and they have the property, right? This These rights are worth less than the, the power you have, right? You're giving up more power than these rights are gaining you. And, and the only reason why there's this even facade to go through it is because the people with the formalized power and the money are standing there trying to protect that. Take that power. Keep fighting for it, right? Know your full worth. This is, this is the primary contradiction moved into a political, away from a, 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 a work relation that we talked about in like chapter 10 or whatever it was of capital, moved into the political, right? Take it yeah. that way, you know? You, you, the, our goal is is the territory, the land, the state, right, and not just the structure as it is. We we have to completely rework this thing. We have to eliminate the settler colony and fulfill land back, and and you know uh, the nation of New Africa along the Black Belt, right? We have to do that. Um, and so don't don't go well, you know. At least it's a good job. At least it's a raise, right? Don't don't do that with political power. It's always failed. Exactly. 
And that is as concise a way to end it as we could for this week. So we will end it right there on page 120. Another 15-pager. Again, some of those pages were blank, but I'm counting them because they're <laughs> it's, it's like jazz, baby. It's the, it's the pages we're not reading. Um, but I'm, I'm still counting it. We're up to page, we're up to page 120. That's another 15-pager pager for the week. Um, and that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. And there are a number of different ways that you can reach out to us. The first of which is through email. Uh, you can email us at marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, the next way you can reach out to us would be on Twitter. We are on the hell site at Mark's Madness Pod. Uh, and if you look at our Twitter bio, you will see a link to our Discord server. Our Discord server is the more day-to-day place where Nathan at least hangs out and David is summoned on command. Um, and that is where we do uh, just more day-to-day talking, you know, venting about what's going on in the world in, in the here and now, uh, memes. My- my child was called aggressively adorable on there the other His day. His child was, was in fact just, called just aggressively that. adorable. That's the kind of community you can hope to be a part of. Um, and then there's a place where you can go and argue if you want, but we don't use it all that often because we're usually pretty chill. Um, that being said, uh, David, disclaim. Yeah, so obviously um, when we started this, and and we still feel, you know, our, our work has changed over time, period, with, with every book we do, with the world going on around us, whether that's breaking news or the work we do in the community or things like that. Um, so, you know, some of this is older stuff, but it did start with Nathan coming up to me and going, hey, I want to read Capital. You've read it before. Let's read it together. That's how you should read theory. And we sat down and read it, and and of course you do want to read theory or history with a group, right? With a political education group in, in the party you're organizing with. And we didn't have a party or more than just two of us, and it was like, man, this is a really small group. So we recorded it. We decided, well, if it goes well enough, we'll see if we can throw it up in a podcast, get a little bigger group, and lo and behold, here we are. Since that beginning, uh, what we've always hoped for is hopefully you're out in your party, in your organization, and in your political education or your reading group, you're reading these books along with us. And hopefully we can be another voice, another source of input, uh, another person to weigh in and help enhance what you get out of that reading group. Let's say that's not happening and you're reading these works by yourself because your political education group or your reading group in your party is reading something shorter or something more pertinent to a project you're on. Hopefully we can be that reading group. We can give you that chance to review what you're reading one more time to soak it in, uh, another source of input to better understand it, the context, things like that. Um, and then let's say that's not happening, and it's either a book like this where we're reading basically word for word like an enhanced ebook, uh, or it's a book we summarize more, whatever it is we can do to make these works more accessible to you, because we want these works out there guiding your actions. And when these works are put into revolutionary action, that's a phenomenon called praxis. Praxis, of course, by definition, cannot exist without theory, and theory is completely useless without doing praxis. They, are, they go hand in hand, they are tied at the hip. Amen, as always. That being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.